Brian, thank you so much, our worship team. Hope you guys are doing well tonight. It's been nice to have all this rain, hasn't it? I haven't uh, seen this much rain in eight years. And, uh, you know, in Southern California, if it just if there's just a little spritzing, people start talking about monsoons and uh, rainstorms. Even though you could walk outside and not actually get wet, you could be outside standing there. But this, I, I learned today, so I met someone for lunch. If you're out in it for just a moment, you get soaking wet. So it's been nice uh, nice to see. We had a couple of good uh, Q&As over the last couple of weeks, which I was grateful for. Appreciate all the questions and the, the comments and the feedback. Uh, the first week uh, looking at elders and the second week on, on deacons and being able to field some good questions there in terms of the direction that we're going as a church. Uh, it's been a few weeks, I guess three weeks, since we've been in the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to resume uh, with that study tonight. Um, I will do just a, a couple of moments of uh, review. Uh, the goal, of course, is, well, we're answering, we're looking at Jesus' response to the disciples saying to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so uh, we know if Jesus is going to teach on prayer, this is something we want to apply to our own lives. And the goal is not just to know more about prayer, of course, although that's good, uh, but hopefully for us to incorporate some of this into our own prayer lives and, and I think, uh, you know, see this as a way to fuel our own prayer endeavors so that when we go to the Lord, it's actually a, the delight of our hearts rather than uh, simply a burden or something we're trying to, to check off. It's so hard, um, you know, to set aside time regularly and faithfully and to be single-minded in our prayer lives. I think for most of us, and I can speak for myself here, the voice of self-reliance is a thousand times louder than that quiet conviction to pray. And so we have to constantly go back and remind ourselves of the, uh, the beauty and the, the delight that we have to go before the Lord. Martin Luther, as I said the first week, called prayer the hardest work of all because it's a spiritual act um, done in a spiritual realm and for which, you know, we, we get no credit. So, you know, if we, if we go out and build something or put something together, we can look back and say, this is what I accomplished. But here with prayer, you know, we can't always do that. Although we do see, uh, we do see the results. Just uh, last week, uh, Janine was was late. I guess it was probably 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening, and she was in a lot of pain. And uh, it wasn't, we knew that she wasn't having a heart attack, but she, she was in a lot of pain. And she said, I may need to go to the emergency room. And I said, well, just let me know. We'll, we'll go right away. And so she went and just uh, kind of sat down, and my 12-year-old daughter and I went in, we went in her bedroom, and we just started praying for mommy, and and we saw how the Lord, you know, it was only, and Janine had been in pain for a little bit, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and we saw, we, we, we left her room, Julia's room, and came out, and Janine said, you know, I'm already starting to feel better. We pleaded for with God to, you know, to, to take, to end the pain, and so we see God working through prayers all the time in big ways and in smaller ways, and yet... It's still difficult to to carve out that time because of the sort of frenetic pace of our lives, and so hopefully it's helpful to to look at what Jesus has to say um, about how we are to pray, what we are to pray for. Um, Jesus helps us with this struggle through this intimate prayer that we've been looking at, and it's one that's very familiar, of course. But I think as we look at it, hopefully we'll see that it actually kind of confronts some of our uh, misconceptions about prayer. So uh, last time we looked at the three, uh, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer is broken down into, into two sections, the, the so-called three thou petitions, uh, which we looked at last week, and I'll review in just a moment, and then the, the three we petitions. So the first three, we're asking God to do something really on behalf of God. 
Um, and then the second half of that, the three we petitions, we're pleading with God to do something uh, on our behalf. So what I've tried to do is um, take these, all, I'm going to take all six of these petitions and kind of re- rephrase them, so to speak, uh, paraphrase them, I guess, and try to capture what I think is is the essence of that. And, you know, the, the New Testament was written primarily in Greek and in the, new, in, Greek, in the Greek language, the word order is not like it is in the English language. And so, and even in this, the, these petitions, the verb appears first in each petition. And the verb, as we talked about, actually appears as an imperative, as a demand. Now, we want to be careful when we start making demands of God, of course, but this is the, the mood that these, these verbs appear in the imperative mood. So, for example, what we normally translate or read as... Uh, hallowed be your name, is actually literally written, cause to be hallowed your name, or cause to be made central your name. And again, so what I've done with each of these petitions, at least the first three, I try to paraphrase them. So let me just go over those quickly. The first one, hallowed be your name, or cause to be made central your name, is real. This is what Jesus is getting at. Father, make your real identity known so that you are recognized and exalted as God, set apart as holy in our heart, in my heart, and in our world. So we're asking God to, uh, it's really pleading with us, pleading with God to make himself known as God. You know, despite all the misconceptions and, and wrong ideas about God, we're saying, God, cause your name, your real identity to be made known, to be made central. Uh, the second one, uh, which, which, you know, call, uh, your kingdom come, cause to come your kingdom, which I paraphrase this way, restore all things, and in the interim, expand your kingdom by bringing more people into it through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice it's, it's evangelistic, um, but it's also very God-centered. And a point that I've made a couple times is looking at, you know, we should look at our own prayer lives and, and I think ask ourselves the question, um, you know, are my prayers God-centered or are they simply me-centered? Now, as we get to the three-week petitions, we're in just a moment, we're going to see it's good for us to ask God for things. But would we say that our prayers are characterized by a theocentricity, a God-centeredness, asking God to do things so that if he does those things, the world, uh, the world will be changed? Um, the uh, the final thou petition we looked at, cause uh, your will be done, or cause to be done your will on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the way I phrase, uh, paraphrase that. Bring about revival on earth so that men would know you, confess you as Lord, and obey you fully just as you are obeyed in heaven. So we know Jesus is going to come again, and uh, what we're praying is, God, send your son, but while we wait... Right, bring people into the kingdom, bring about revival on earth so that men would know you and confess you as Lord. So those are the three thou petitions that we looked at, uh, three urgent requests of God that should characterize our prayer lives. Uh, and then tonight I want to look at those three we petitions. So Matthew uh, chapter 6, and you know it's really just three or four, three verses, but um, the first uh, we petition, so to speak, is this, Matthew six eleven. Give us this day our daily bread. So we've seen that biblical prayer is bringing before the Lord our needs and our petitions, our requests. Now, of course, there's a place for uh, 
being silent, being alone with God, being just worshiping God, praising God. There's a place for that, of course. But biblical prayer is at its very heart as petitionary. It's bringing requests before the Lord. And as we've seen, even though our first and our primary request should be God-centered, uh, Jesus wants us to know in the second half of this prayer that it's acceptable. In fact, what God desires of us is that we bring our own needs before him. So he says, you know, when you pray, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's been a lot of debate over the centuries as to what this means. And there are three kind of uh, prevailing thoughts on this. And I'm not going to go through all three of them with you. But one of the reasons is because this Greek word, uh, epiousios, is, is a very obscure word. It's not found in any other place in, in the Bible or in any other Greek literature minus one little fragment of a writing by Jerome, which will come after, uh, after this was written. In fact, Origen, uh, who was a second century theologian, um, third century, he suggested that it was, that this word was actually a made up word. It wasn't even a real word. So you can see where there'd be some controversy as to what it means. Um, but what are we asking God when we ask him to give us this day, our daily bread? Well, in order to make sense of it, you have to understand a little bit about the first century context. Um, you know, we get paid on, if you work a job, you get paid on the 15th through the 30th or every other week or whatever it was. But in Jesus' day, most of the laborers were day laborers, and they got paid at the end of the day for work that they had just completed. So, as you know, we, we read some of the parables. You see that uh, sometimes people are looking for work. They start out the day at 6 a.m. or earlier looking for work. They may be picked up for a job. They work that day. They get paid at the end of the day. Uh, unlike, you know, where we know what days we're going to get paid on, this was they would work, and when they didn't have work, they didn't get paid. And pay was often, was often so measly that it was virtually impossible to save any of it. It provided just enough resources to purchase food for the evening after work. And to top things off, the culture was largely agrarian, as you know, meaning people lived off the land, which means that you depended on the weather at times uh, in order to actually survive for sustenance. And one bad crop could mean disaster for a family or an entire clan of families. And so uh, the, when these first century folks prayed, give us this day our daily bread, what they were saying was, in essence, give us this day what is needful for tomorrow, our immediate future. They weren't asking for all of life's struggles to be met, taken care of indefinitely. They weren't asking God to give them financial security for the upcoming years. Only what was needed to survive. And it wasn't just bread they were praying for. This is much more inclusive than just food. Bread is the stuff of life. And so here's kind of what God's people were praying for when Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. They're praying for jobs, right? You, you need a job in order to provide for your family. And as I mentioned, for some folks, it was, it was touch and go in terms of their job. Praying for money in order to provide, praying for uh, transportation, praying for the fair treatment of all people, we might say uh, economic justice, praying for uh, good government, praying for a climate that's conducive to planting and harvesting, praying for a clear mind, playing, praying for, for health, praying for physical strength, praying for the will to continue to work. So all of these things are, are wrapped up in 
praying for our daily bread. So what they're saying is, God, we're praying that you would give us, it's not just about food, it's not just about bread. We're praying, God, will you do all the things necessary? Will you, will you give us what we need to survive? And we're not just asking for us, we're asking for all those in our community who are struggling, who are hungry, dispossessed, marginalized, impoverished, unemployed, etc. The concept is this, the day's provisions are past. We've worked, we've been paid, likely have eaten. God, will you provide our immediate and our upcoming needs? So here, here's, I'm trying to again paraphrase these in ways that really drive home the point of, of what Jesus is saying. So here's the way I would paraphrase the first we petition. Father, provide for us our immediate needs as we continue to trust you with the future. So this is this is an this is the biblical evidence Jesus indication that we should go to God with all of our concerns all of our all of our issues all of our concerns there are no concerns that are too small to bring to the Lord now we know for, through James writing that we can't ask for things for the wrong reasons we can ask for things to consume them upon our lust and so on but there's no there's no uh, amount of suffering there's no anxiety, fear, concern that you're you possibly going through that is that is beyond the Lord's interest. So we're called to bring all these things, everything uh, before the Lord. This is what Jesus is instructing us to pray. Father, provide for us our immediate needs as we continue to trust you with the future. Now, this of course depends on it depends on the recognition that we are that we need God for everything which in the day of human ingenuity is, is not often recognized, is it? I did some work at THM on, on systematic theology and bioethics, and, and what is really stunning is the way that nanotheology, things keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it wasn't that long ago that in, in comic strips and cartoons, it was like, it was this futuristic notion that we, we could have phones on our, on our you know, wristwatches, right? But now, of course, you know that there are multiple people making them. You know, most people have an, an iWatch or Apple Watch or whatever. With nanotechnology, things are getting you know smaller and more more uh, faster and, and with more storage, and and all that to say that human ingenuity continues to advance, which means that you know we have this natural tendency then to to trust in ourselves more and more, our own abilities, our own insights, and it begins with this prayer asking God to provide for us begins with the recognition that we actually need him for everything. Uh, as I share with the staff this week, the reformers had this saying that if God stopped thinking about us for a second, we would cease to exist. Now, it's a bit, you know, what we call anthropomorphic. It's, it's, it's looking at God through a human lens because God doesn't have kind of like fleeting and bouncing thoughts. But, but what we're saying is we absolutely depend on God for everything. Uh, there's an old movie that came out in 1965 called Shenandoah. Anybody seen this movie before? Any of our seen? Okay, yeah, Deb's seen it. Uh, maybe someone else. Um, and it's starring Jimmy Stewart. And you know what, Jim, what was Jimmy Stewart known for? What, what do most Christians know Jimmy Stewart for? What movie? Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life, right? And this is, the, this is what he's kind of known for. He did a bunch of other movies and actually won an Oscar for another movie, and I forget what it was called, something about Philadelphia. Um, but anyway, he was in this movie, which was set in the 1860s uh, during the Civil War, and it's about a man, Jimmy Stewart plays this man who's lost his wife, 
His wife is, is passed on. His wife was a devout Christian, but this man, he's not really sure. He's not sure about the whole Jesus stuff, the Christianity stuff. But when his wife passes away, she leaves him um, six sons and one daughter. So he has seven kids. And he thinks, well, I want to make sure that I, I want to honor my wife's, you know, sort of request and my wife's faith. And even though he's not really buying it, he, he tries to, there's a, there's a scene in that movie where he, he tries his hardest to kind of model what it means to be a Christian. He sits down with all of his kids and he tries to pray. So, you know, this is not really his thing, but he knows his wife. So he sits down and, and he prays. Uh, and this is, in fact, one of the opening scenes of the movie. Deb, you may remember this. He, he prays this way. He says, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed this ground. We planted this seed. We pulled the weeds. We harvested the wheat. We built the house. It wouldn't be here if we hadn't. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same, Lord, for this meal. And there's this notion that, you know, this, he doesn't really believe that God's given him anything. What he's really saying is, you know, I've done all these things. I've done all the work. I've done all the planning. I've been out there from sun up till sundown. I've done all these things. But, you know, I guess I'm supposed to say thanks, God, even though I know this is really all on me. Unless we really get to this point of recognizing our need for God, we're not going to go to God and pray with any desperation, God, uh, give us this day our daily need. But a believer sees things differently. A believer recognizes that God makes the plants to grow. God's the one who makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall. Even in my, my prayer this morning as I'm spending time with the Lord, I just, I, rem- I remembered as, as I heard the rain falling that, you know, that Jesus says it's God who makes the rain, the, the sun to rise and the rain to fall and the righteous, the unrighteous. It's all from God. So, so the believer recognizes that, that it's God who brings the rain and the sunshine, God who gives us the ability to work. You ever seen anyone who, as they've gotten older, uh, maybe when they were in their, you know, sort of the prime of their life, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, they're strong and could do everything. And, and as they've gotten older, they're losing some of that physical strength and some of that ability. And you see how hard it is for them. I mean, understandably, they've gone from being a person who just could take over, take charge and you know, do whatever. And then now they're at a place where they actually need someone to help them. In fact, I heard, I don't know if you I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Pastor Chris, but Chris was sharing a little bit about his own, his own father and a very strong and independent man who, who has dealt with a lot of physical struggles and finding it naturally very difficult, right, to actually ask somebody for help getting in and out of car. I've seen this. But the person who, who the true believer, the one who, who understands who God is and who we are, we understand God gives us the strength to go to work, the ability to do things rain and sun to make the grass grow. We know that without his sustaining grace, we couldn't do or have anything. So when we pray, God, give us this daily bread, we're actually confessing our dependence upon him. Say, God, I know that I need you. And if you don't provide for me, I won't have what I need. Okay, now let's let's look at the next petition, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the second uh, we petition. And this is, this is, I wrote the word troubling. This is a little troubling, if not perplexing, 
because it does seem like Jesus is placing a condition on forgiveness. Seems like Jesus is saying that forgiveness is not a free grace of God, but instead something we earn by forgiving those who have offended us. Now, that's a little troublesome, isn't it? If, it, if that's what Jesus means. Now, we're going to talk, by the way, next week, there's a, this last part of this prayer, verses 14 and, through, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're going to look next week, I'm calling it an excursus on forgiveness. We're going to look at for biblical forgiveness, what it looks like, what it's not, because there are a variety of thoughts on forgiveness. And biblical forgiveness is very different than therapeutic forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness says, you know, whether you believe you're wrong, whether you've harmed anybody, whether you just sort of, you just always say, you know, I was wrong. And, um, but biblical forgiveness is actually contractual, which look, we'll look at that next week. Um, but what does Jesus mean when he says, when he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? Um, if Jesus is addressing his, here's another thing that makes it perplexing. If Jesus is addressing his disciples, those who have apparently already responded to him by faith, then why would he instruct them to ask God for forgiveness if they've already been forgiven by the atoning work of Christ? Uh, in, in March of just about, well, not every year, but in, in the, the last few marches, um, I go to this thing in Carlsbad, California, which is right outside of Oceanside, and it's, um, it sounds really pretentious, but it, it, I hope it wasn't. Um, it's called the K Club, which was lead pastor's of churches of a thousand or more uh, from all over the country, and there were third. This is part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, the FCA, and so and there were like thirty-two of us from around the country, various ages and backgrounds, and so on. And it was two days of encouraging each other, uh, guided discussion, and one of the side benefits. You know, these guys were all more. Uh, they were bigger celebrities than I ever was. And so they would all bring their books. So anybody who's written a book the last year, you bring your book and everybody gets free copies. Well, there was one guy who brought his book the last time I went, which was a couple of years ago, I guess. And it was a pretty good book, I thought. Um, I had a chance to review it and look through it. But one of the points that he made, which was very thought-provoking, um, but I, it, it bothered me a little bit, it was this. He said, as Christians, we don't need to ask God to forgive us of our sins, because when we place our faith in Christ, in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, we were instantly forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Now, so, so far, so good. I mean, well, not so far, so good. The fact that we're forgiven of all of our sins, uh, even, even our future sins, is true. Um, but this idea that we don't, he, the point of the, this one chapter in the book was we don't really need to ask God for forgiveness on a regular basis because we've already been totally and eternally forgiven by God in Christ. Okay, that's true as far as it goes. That is to say, we have been forgiven. This is what justification is like. And even uh, back in 2005, Louis Giglio, and he's got, got some very good stuff and respect a lot of what he does, but he, he also is a well-known pastor and worship leader. He spoke at a conference where he made the point that we need to stop asking God to forgive us. That's already been done, he said. Instead of forgive me, he said we should pray, thank you for forgiving me. Well, I totally agree that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified, right? And we are looked at um, 
as we tell the kids and we teach them, justified, never sinned. So we're we're looked at by God through Christ as though I'd never sinned. We're justified. We're declared not guilty, right? So we're, we're, we're totally forgiven for all of our sins, even the ones we'll commit in the future. We're declared righteous. Um, never will God hold our sins against us. But if that's true, why would Jesus instruct us to say, forgive us, Father, forgive us our debts? Well, a couple reasons here. First of all, when we sin, we incur a, a debt against God, not a financial debt but a moral debt. The idea is we have a moral obligation to God that we have not met. So the Bible tells us that we're created to uh, glorify God. We're created to enjoy him, to be in relationship with him. And, And because he's God and we're not, we're actually commanded to do everything he tells us to do. And when we don't obey him, we actually incur against God a moral debt that we have to pay, that we, that, that we uh, deserve to pay. Um, in fact, the apostle, uh, Peter says this, we must obey God if we're going to be right with him. The apostle Peter says, as obedient children, I think this is uh, 1 Peter 1, right? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust with which uh, yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When we fail to keep God's commands, we incur a debt against God. When we sin, we incur a debt against God, that must be paid. And because of that debt, we are under the wrath of God. But when Jesus came to the earth to save us by actually obeying God in every way, satisfying God's perfect law, dying on a cross, he paid the debt that we owe as only he could. He took what we owed God and paid it for us by meeting God's holy standard and by dying in our place as our substitute. Because he was God, he was able to pay it. And because he was man, he was able to be our substitute. And when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, turning from our own self-salvation, our own independence, our own sinfulness, rebellion, God actually cancels the debt that we owe against him because it's paid in full by Christ. The Apostle Paul says it this way, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. So when we truly trust in Jesus, that debt is gone. It's all put on Christ's account, right? And we're declared free righteous. The beauty of Christianity is more than just that. Not only, as I talked about on Sunday, does God cancel our debt, but he credits to us all the benefits of Jesus' righteous, Jesus' perfect life. So for those who are in Christ, every sin we commit is covered by Jesus and his blood. When we sin, God's not in heaven uh, scowling at us. He's not keeping a tally against us. He's not shaking his head, thinking he's crossed the limit of offenses. It's over, right? He's not up in the clouds threatening to leave us or abandon us. God loves us as his children. If we're in Christ, there's nothing we can do to cause God to turn his back on us, to fall out of favor with him, or to sabotage our standing with him. When God sees us, he sees us as those who are righteous because of Christ and Christ's perfect obedience in our place. But there's another aspect of God's forgiveness that is ongoing, 
So we, we can talk about the positional versus practical righteousness, however you want to describe it. There's another aspect of God's forgiveness that is ongoing, and that is the, the sweet renewal of fellowship with God that we, that we experience when we've been forgiven. There's something that happens to us when we have unconfessed sin in our lives, and it's this. Our relationship with God from our side is hampered. Doesn't mean that we can't go to God because we don't go to God based on our righteousness. We don't go to God based on our goodness. We go to God through Jesus Christ and in Christ who is perfectly righteous and holy. But something happens. It's kind of like when my kids, um, if one of my kids has really, really offended me or, or sinned against me or just done the total opposite of what I've said to do, my, my love doesn't change for them. I'll, I'll make it singular. Let's say, let's say my son. My son wrongs me. He, he disobeys me. He rebels against me. My love for him still doesn't change. But our relationship is probably going to change a little bit, at least, you know, the, the way that's expressed. The way I express that love is going to change, right? And even I could say uh, the way he feels about me and the way he feels about my love is probably going to change. Doesn't change my love for him, and this, of course, is coming from an, an imperfect father. But so, so when we sin against God, it, it's not as though God says, okay, now I'm against you. I don't love you anymore. I'm not for you. No, none of that happens. We have, every, you know, we have everything in Christ. But from our side, we live with shame. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we don't want to be in God's presence because of our guilt. I had a guy who came up to me um, several years ago, and this is a guy who was struggling with same-sex attraction and uh, tried to counsel him and his wife for a while. Then he just disappeared. I didn't see him for a long time. He came up to me at the end of a service, and he was crying. He said, and he said, pray for me. I said, I haven't seen you in a long time. He goes, I just, there's no way that I could come to church with the guilt that I was feeling. Now, if he was in Christ, and I believe this guy was, if he's in Christ, it doesn't, God, has, God doesn't say, you, you have to clean yourself up before you come to me. But he has a feeling like, I just don't feel right approaching God. Here's, let, let me, there's another, uh, there's an 18th century English pastor, John Gill, who says it uh, very beautifully, he says this, the petition, this petition supposes a sense, acknowledgement, and confession of sin. What is here requested is a manifestation and application of pardon to the conscience of a sensible a sinner, which, as it is daily needed, is to be daily asked for. In other words, and I'm not, I hope I'm not, I'm, I feel like I'm making this confusing. I hope I'm not. But uh, even though God's wrath has already been fully satisfied in Christ, and even though our debt has been fully paid, when we sin against our Father who loves us so much, we know it and we feel it. And this feeling of guilt robs us of joy. It steals our peace from God. The peace with God, Romans 5, never changes. But the peace from God often changes because of our own behavior, our own disobedience. So it, it hinders our prayer life. We feel, we feel like we have to deal with it. And this is why we regularly go to God and actually seek his forgiveness. So here's, here's a second way. I, here's a second sort of paraphrase. Here's how I would paraphrase what Jesus is saying. Here's what we say to God. God, we have sinned against you by rebelling against your will. 
please forgive us and restore to us the sweetness and joy and unburdened fellowship with you. Jesus is not telling us, instructing us to ask God to re-justify us. We're already justified. What he's saying is, when you go to God, you know you've sinned, you know you've rebelled, you know you've fallen short, as we all do all the time. You say, God, we've sinned against you by rebelling against your will. Please forgive us, or personally, please forgive me. Restore to me the sweetness and joy and unburdened fellowship with you. All right, let's look at the third uh, we petition, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, why might that cause an eyebrow to raise? And this is not a rhetorical question. Somebody can answer, raise your hand and answer. Why might this particular petition that Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, why would that cause us maybe to say, wait a second, Yeah, because the scriptures tell us that God is not tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. So why in the world would Jesus say for us to pray, God, lead us not into temptation? Are there any any English teachers in here, any grammarians, any literary folks? No? Okay. Well, let me tell you, um, I was a, I changed majors about nine times, but before, but at one point I was an English major for like two weeks. And so I studied English grammar a a little while. This is what you call a litotes. So you, why don't you put that up, Frank? So there it is. This is a litotes. This, I made it up, didn't I? Yeah. Now, this is a real thing. Google this when you get home. This is a real thing. Uh, Chris is messing with me because he actually knows grammar quite well. He knows this is a real thing. And here's what this is. So it's a figure of speech where an affirmative is expressed by negating its opposite. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Let me give an example, a couple of examples, one from the scripture and one from regular life. So it, it, it's a way of saying, affirming something by actually negating the opposite. So here's a litotes in Acts 21. Paul, when Paul refers to Tarsus, right, the city he's from, he says, I'm from Tarsus, which is no ordinary city. What he's saying is, this is an incredible city. He's saying that by negating the opposite. Let me, I'll give you one that maybe makes a little more sense to you. It's kind of a regular. So if a boy, it's like when a boy asks a girl out for a date. Anybody at that stage where your kids are dating yet? So I know some of, you, some of your kids are married and so on, right? So it's like when a boy asks a girl out for a date, and he says, and she says to him, you've got to check with my dad first, and I should warn you, he's not a small man. So what she's saying is, she's saying, you got to check with my dad, and my dad's a really big dude, okay? So you're going to be, you need to get ready for this. She's saying that, she's saying he's no small man. She's saying he's a big guy by, by negating the opposite. So let me tell you, so here's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's, when he's saying lead us, he's saying lead us, not, not it's in temptation. What he's saying is lead us not into temptation, but into righteousness. So here's the way I would paraphrase this third one. Do not allow us to succumb to temptation, but keep us far from it and protect us from the evil one who seeks to destroy us. The problem is not that God would lead us into temptation. The problem is we find it very easily on our own, don't we? We find it very easily. And, you know, with, with smartphones and, and 
Wi-Fi in our homes and, and with the things we drive by, the things we see in stores. I remember the first time I traveled uh, to South Africa and I had... Uh, and I, I traveled there through Heathrow, London Heathrow, a bunch of times before I found a better way to go. But I remember the first time I'm walking around London Heathrow and I'm looking at the bookstore. I mean, I'm just bored because I had like every time I had a, between an eight and 10 hour layover before they got some things straightened out. And I would go in the bookstore and I couldn't believe the things that are like right in front, not covered in the bookstore in England. I mean, you know, things that are right up front that any kid could see or whatever. Temptation is all around us. It's not as though we need, uh, you know, we have to worry about God leading us into it. He's not going to. We find it ourselves. What we need is for God to lead us away from it and to keep us from being swept up in it. Now, we think of temptation, we tend to think of sexual temptation, and of course, that's a real struggle. That's a real temptation. But the word here is very broad. It has a very broad meaning. It basically includes any set of circumstances that would bring pressure on us to ignore God and violate his commands. Any uh, set of circumstances that would, that would and, and those may be different for different people. You know, those may be different. There are things that, that you may struggle with that I don't. There are things that I may struggle with that you don't. So we have to realize, we have to know ourselves and, and, and be honest with ourselves and be humble enough to recognize Okay, this is a scenario. This is a situation. These are circumstances that may cause me to sin. And they may not, they may not affect anyone else. They may, but they may affect, may affect me. I had lunch. I've had lunch every day with somebody for the last uh, two weeks, and I've been, I'm loving. I'm loving uh, spending time with people. I had lunch with a guy today who was telling me about a child that they brought into their home, he and his wife, a foster child, and he said that, this child would throw fits, uh, tantrums, for five straight hours when they first brought this young lady, this girl into her, I guess she was, I forget, six or seven years old. And he would say, for five hours. Like, I mean, how does a person do that and not be exhausted? But she would throw this, th these fits. Well, you know, for some people, that's going to be, that. I mean, well, for just about anybody, for anybody, I'm not going to say for some, or for just about for anybody. That's going to tempt us to, to feel certain ways, isn't it? It's going to tempt us to be angry, to be despondent, to be whatever. So we're always aware of those triggers in our own lives. And we pray, God, lead me. Not into temptation, but lead me away from the things that may ensnare me. Um, poverty can tempt us to ignore God or reject him, but so can wealth, right? Um, I forget who it was who said this, but... Uh, said that, you know, that, that uh, failure has slain its thousands, but success has slain its tens of thousands, right? That success and wealth and prominence and so on, the, the harm that, uh, you know, that things can bring. So it could be, for some it could be poverty, for some it could be wealth. F weakness, physical, emotional weakness can cause temptation, but so can strength. Strength can lead us to a place of what we believe to be self-reliance. Many of us feel as though we're pretty spiritually strong, so we think, you know, look, bring on temptation. I can handle it. Now, no one ever say that, but we, we think we can handle it. But that's the wrong prayer. That's the wrong prayer. Don't, don't pray, bring on temptation. I mean, God's not going to bring it on. He's not gonna, he's, he doesn't tempt anyone, as Dusty pointed out. Um, but we can be easily self-deceived. We need the Father's strength to empower us, to avoid temptation. The second part, to deliver us from 
this is substantive. It says evil, but it's better translated the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. As we grow in spiritual maturity, we recognize more and more the deceptive subtleties of the evil one and his minions. Uh, there's only one, but the devil, by the way, is not omnipresent. The devil's only in one place at one time. Um, but the devil has his minions, his, his, his evil spirits and demons, and, and those uh, seek to, to wreak havoc on the church, the believing community, starting with its leaders and starting with marriages. And as we grow in spiritual maturity, we recognize, again, more the, 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 the deception of our own heart and the real presence of the evil one. And thus, we, we plead with God, Father, do not allow me to succumb to temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. In other words, I don't pretend to believe for a second that I have the ability in my own strength to withstand temptation, to, to fight off the, the wily and crafty and deceptive uh, efforts of the evil one and his minions. I desperately need your help, God. I desperately need your strength. I need your grace. I need your mercy. So these are the three we petitions. Jesus uh, gives us a model on how to pray, not just uh, the attitude, the mindset. We talked about the first week of the study, but also how and what to pray for. And he gives us these priorities. So um, let me just read them through again. I'll take uh, just nine or ten minutes for questions if you have any. So um, if you have the text of Scripture there, maybe you can just look at it as I go through these real quickly. Take me a minute or two. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Literally, cause to be hallowed your name. Cause to be made central your name. Or as I've phrased it, Father, make your real identity known. A name represented a person's identity, essence, and so on. So you're recognized and exalted as God, set apart as holy in my heart and our world. Your kingdom come, okay? Literally, cause to come your kingdom in other words, I've paraphrased it. Restore all things, and in the interim, expand your kingdom. Bring your kingdom about by, by ushering more people into it through faith in Jesus Christ. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Cause to be done your will on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, bring about a revival on earth so that men, women, children would know you, and confess you as Lord, obey you fully in the same way you're obeyed in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. They're even written in, as an imperative, which I paraphrase this way. Father, provide for us our immediate needs as we continue to trust you with the future. Uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, which I paraphrased uh, this way. God, we've sinned against you by rebelling against your will. Please forgive us. Restore to us the sweetness and joy and unburdened fellowship with you. And then finally, lead us not into temptation. Remember, that's anybody who remembers what uh, device, that literary device that is. Chris, I know you know, so you can't answer. Latotes. Well, that's, that's how they say in Alabama, latotes. Uh, no, I'm just, it's a litotes. That's good. I like that. That's the way you would think it's pronounced, right? Litotes. Yeah, so litotes. It's, it's affirming the positive by negating. Uh, right, the opposite. So in other words, oh, thank you, Frank. Did you put that up before he answered? No. Okay. So here's the way, here's the way I paraphrase the last one. Um, do not allow us to succumb to temptation, 
but keep us far from it and protect us from the evil one who seeks to destroy us.